Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather again in freedom to study your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have opened up the minds and hearts of your saints to perceive and receive the gospel. And we glory in you. You're the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And we're uh, forever thankful for that. And Lord, you're also the great high physician. And so we lift up Dolores to you. Heavenly Father, we ask for healing upon her and that you would use this, even this, to help conform her to the image of your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make an announcement about next. I hope you knew about this. Maybe you didn't. <laughs> but uh, next Sunday for Sunday school, we're going to have a special presentation. And Robert Bactel has organized various street evangelists from the church here who have been going out week after week after week and going to events and going on the streets and preaching the gospel, they're going to be speaking. And they'll be sharing stories about preaching the gospel to people out on the street, some of the encounters they've had. And you're going to want to be here to hear this. They've got some really cool stories. My favorite ones, Robert, are when when they go preach the gospel to gospel workers. <laughs> and they got, and then the, some of the gospel workers get mad they don't like the gospel. Oh. <laughs> you got to hear that. Okay, so next Sunday morning is a special presentation about evangelism, evangelism from our evangelists. Okay. That's right. Thanks, Bob. Um, You guys remember last time we were together, we talked about Paul's thankfulness for the Colossians, or to God really because of the Colossians' salvation. Well, this week we're going to be looking at the prayer that Paul gives on behalf of the Colossians, and I want to talk about the flow of, of the book real quickly. Eventually we're going to get into verses 15 through 20, which is a crescendo because it's going to be talking about the supremacy of Christ. So think of this as building up to a crescendo where we're going to see Christ laid before us like we've haven't seen in a lot of books. It's really magnificent. Okay. So right now we're in an intercessory prayer where Paul is praying on behalf of the Colossians. But before I do that, I want to finish from last week. Remember I said we're always going to just get as far as we get and then we'll just stop. Remember last week, Paul was thankful. And I said there's an application that we can glean from that. Namely, we too should be thankful for the salvation of the saints. Part of being thankful is loving the saints, being thankful for our mutual salvation. And remember, this isn't just something that's kind of nice to do. It's a commandment from the Lord to love one another. In fact, Jesus says, the world will know that you're mine if you love one another. We're commanded to do that. In 1 John, loving one another is actually evidence of being regenerate, being saved. But let me say this. A lot of times, you and I as Christians aren't that loving. Now, I've had a great experience here, but I know myself. I'm not always very loving. And so I tell you something that helped me in my life. It's thinking theologically, taking a step back and thinking about each single person who is a believer, a saint, as someone who's going to glorify Jesus Christ in the last day. And that's why I brought up Romans 9, 22 through 23. Listen to what Paul says and listen to the glory that the saints will end up bringing him. He says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and, now here's the second purpose, and that he might make known the riches of his glory. On what? On the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. You guys, maybe there's a Christian in your life that isn't very loving, or lovable, I should say. Maybe they're not loving either. 
But I tell you what, keep this passage in mind and remember when you're loving them, you're loving someone who is a saint and who is going to be bringing honor and glory to Jesus on the last day. Okay? And the reason I bring this up is sometimes it's not easy to love one another, but it's always easy or should be to love God. Amen? And so keep this as a tactic in your back pocket. Say, you know what? I can't stand so-and-so, but I know they're going to bring honor and glory somehow to God. Okay? <laughs> I've had to do it. Okay? All right. Now, <laughs> it's a little tactic. Now, there's another reason I want to talk about this passage, however, because several people have talked to me or brought up the question about um, fairness. Is it fair that God elects those whom he will save and elects those whom he will, in fact, send to hell? In other words, reprobation. And I want to address that issue with this passage since I have it up here anyway because so many people have brought this issue up. And I want to really dive into this passage, and then we're going to get into Colossians. So this is just a brief bunny trail, all right? Now, I took this passage out of the New King James Version, and the reason why is in the, the New American Standard Version, it has what if, which is good, but then has although. The although in the NES doesn't belong there, because it's almost as if, well, although God puts up with it, it, it no, there's two purposes being listed in this passage, okay? This whole passage is put in what's called a protesis, apotesis construction. Now, what in the world is that? Well, it's an if-then. And, and so it's starting off saying, what if, God? And then there's a then at the bottom. However, the then isn't explicit. It's implied. And I'll, hold, I'll let you hold on to that notion, and we'll discuss the implied then when we get done with the next slide. Okay, but it's an if-then construction. Listen to what's being stated. What if God, now here comes the desire. It comes from Thelone, which is a participle saying God desires this. Okay, he's desiring to what? To show his wrath and to make his power known. So he wants to make his wrath and his power known. And in so doing, he had to endure with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared. Now here becomes the big kicker. This participle is called katertismena. It comes from a word katertizo, the, the verb katertizo. Katertisma is a middle, has a middle passive ending. Okay? Now I'm going to explain why that's significant here in a minute. The point is in Greek, all we have is the ending of the participle, and it's either middle or passive, and you and I, as the interpreter, have to determine which it is. Now let me explain the significance of that. If this is middle, if this participle is middle, it's saying that the vessels prepared themselves for destruction. You, you, you with me? They're prepared themselves for destruction. However, if it's passive, there's an outside force acting upon the vessels, and I think it's obvious it's God. God is preparing them. And the only way we can tell which it is is through context. Okay? Now, let me lay out the case that I think it's a passive. Let me lay out the case. Thirteen times this participle is used in the New Testament. Never is it used as a direct middle. It's used as what's called an indirect middle. Now, here's the difference between the middles. A direct middle is I do something to myself. That's a direct middle. An indirect middle is something happens on my behalf that I benefit from. Okay? You with me? Now, let me give you an example of an indirect middle. Let me read to you Matthew 21.16. You're going to see this verb used here. In the context of this passage... The religious leaders are mad because even children in the temple are singing praises to Jesus. 
And they said to him, do you hear what the children are saying? This is Matthew 21, 16. And it says, and Jesus said to them, yes, but have you never read? And here comes Psalm 8, 2. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared, katertitzo, praise for yourself. So there's an indirect middle because God isn't doing this to himself, but God is the agent that is preparing praise for himself. It's on his behalf. My point is this word that I have circled never appears as a direct middle in the entire New Testament. That's powerful evidence that it could not be a middle here. It has to be a passive. But what else would tell us that this, in fact, should be a passive? In other words, God is doing the hardening context. What do we read in verse 21 of the chapter 9 of Romans? We see that God takes clay and he makes some for honorable use and literally some for dishonorable use. And he has the right to do that. Why? Well, because he's God. If you own clay, you can do with the clay what you want, right? If you own a car, I, well, maybe that's not a good example. You can't run people over. But you with me. If you own something, you can do what you want with it, right? It, it, right? And it's, anyway, I won't get into politics or anything, but it's getting to be less that way in America. We're losing freedoms, I think. But the whole point is, is that God is the one who has prepared these for destruction. Now, in the next slide, I'm going to talk about how he prepared them, because that's where, the, I think, confusion comes in. But let's finish this passage out. So God is the one who's prepared them for destruction. And it goes on to say, and, okay, so now, now this is another purpose, and, and it's the Hina, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. A lot of translations will actually leave out this and. And the best manuscript evidence has it. It's a chi. The, the reason why that's significant is because there's two purposes for what God is doing. He wants to prepare those for destruction to demonstrate his wrath and power, and he wants to make known the riches of his glory on the saints. You with me? He wants to do two things. Why? Because he ends up getting glory. Now, what about the idea of fairness? Let's continue into this idea here. Let's talk about the difference between formal uh, versus instrumental cause. And I think this will help clarify the fairness of God preparing beforehand those who will perish. Okay? First of all, what's a formal cause? Well, formal cause is the originator of the idea or the plan. Okay? But the instrumental cause is the means by which an agent uses to carry out the plan. All right, now, look at my handy-dandy chart here. On the left side, you have those who are saved, the elect, and those who are damned, the reprobate. And I want you to think that, yes, the formal cause, the originator of the idea or the plan, is God in both instances. But now when we get to the instrumental cause, what actually causes one to be saved and one to be damned, this is where there's a difference in the difference between election and reprobation. And this is where the idea of fairness comes in. Okay? When we looked at salvation of the elect, the instrumental cause is God's grace. Right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. What's the, inter- in- the instrumental cause of our salvation? Completely God's grace. Right? Now, what ends up sending us to hell? Is it just God's a mean bully? No. The instrumental cause is man's sin. And this is important because, you see, God's hand then is not defiled in any way with unholiness. He remains holy. He is not touched by evil in any sense. So let me give you a couple passages here. Of course, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. This is the one that I'd like for somebody to look up. 
Um, Sam, do you want to look that up? Uh, James 1, 13 through 14. James 1, 13 through 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. There you go. So why is it that we're sinners? Is it because God is making us be sinners? No, it's because of who we are. The problem with sin and our damnation is our problem. God is, in order to make his reprobate, let's stop this way. Get back to our hardening. How does God harden? He merely takes his hand of grace and mercy off of these people. Or or put it this way, he never puts it upon them. He lets sinners be who they are. But when he saves the elect, he puts his hand upon them and regenerates them. You see the difference? Okay, so therefore, God is completely holy. He never made anyone sin. They did that themselves. Oh, another good passage is, remember in Matthew 26, 24? Let me turn to that real quick. You're going to see this instrumental cause, formal cause idea real clearly. Remember, Judas betrays the Son of Man. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 26, 24, Jesus says, The Son of Man is to go... Just as it is written of him, in other words, the foreordained plan of God, right? But woe to that man by whom, instrumental cause, the Son of Man is betrayed. Okay, and then we get to this doctrine of compatibility. God is completely sovereign, yet there's human means involved. Are you with me? And that we're seeing the distinction in that verse, I, I believe, between the formal and the instrumental cause. Okay? All right. Now, with that, let's go on then to our Colossians study. And I'm going to give you a brief outline. And there's only five verses, but this is very rich. I love this section. First of all, verse 9 is the petition. Paul is praying that these people may be filled. And he asks them to be filled in knowledge, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. And in verse 10a, he gives the reason. Why does he want them to be filled? Well, so that they will walk worthily with the Lord. Okay, that's the reason he's asking for this. Again, it's all about the glory of God. And then when we get to 10b to 12a, the how you're to walk worthily. How are you going to walk worthily? Well, there's four adverbial participles, and you're going to see them. It's bearing, bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened, giving thanks. These four participles. So that's how we're going to accomplish this, or how we're to be about giving glory to God and walking worthily. And then why? Why are we going to be doing this at all? Well, because Christ has, or I should say God the Father, has qualified us to be part of the inheritance of the saints. Okay? That's exciting. That's the inheritance that we have. And the other why is because he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So that's how this this section of Scripture lays out. Okay, now, let's get right into verse 9 then. Paul prays for the elect at Colossae. Colossians 1.9, Paul writes this. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, now, I want you to notice there's an interesting construction here. It's a subjunctive. With a hina. Anytime you guys you see a that, if you do just a quick look in a concordance, 
It's often because of a word called hina. Hina. Say that five times, you own that word. Okay? All right? And that's an instrumental cause clause. It's a purpose clause. In order that. Well, when it's combined with the subjunctive, and again, you guys have this ability to look all this stuff up in a concordance. If a hina is combined with a subjunctive mood, then it is something that will necessarily take place. Okay? Now, that's exciting because it indicates not only the intention, but the certainty that we're going to be filled with his knowledge. Why? Because God is going to accomplish it, as we will see. Okay? That's cool. God is going to do this. We're not going to be left to our own devices. Okay? All right, now, let's keep moving on here. Um, The passive. Again, who's doing it? God is doing it. He's the agent of the filling. Now, notice this term, being filled. There's a play on words throughout Colossians, and it's a play on this term fullness. It's a concept that appears in all of these passages. Now, let me have somebody read. Stefan, do you want to read Colossians 2, 9, and 10 for me? For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all and rule authority. Great. So in him you have been made complete. That's the NES translation. Literally, in him you have been made full. Okay, you've been made full. So Christ is the fullness of deity. All of God dwells within him. And because of what he has done, you have been made full. Now, why is that important to the Colossians? Because the Colossian heretics are saying, you need, yeah, Christ is fine, but you need something else. You're not complete. In fact, in order for you to have a bumper crop this year, and in order for you not to have your children get sick, and your dog get run over, and your goat to fall over, and on and on and on in this life, you're going to have to invoke the angels that are going to protect you from the stoichia, which are the evil angels. And so again, they're saying Christ isn't sufficient. He's not enough. That's what the heretics are saying. You need fullness elsewhere. Paul is saying, no, you have fullness in Christ. And so you're going to see this play on words all the way through Colossians. Okay? So, yeah, now let's focus in on this idea that the knowledge of his will is in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The idea here is the spiritual is thrown forward in the verse. It's put that way for emphasis. All right? So this is stating that both the wisdom and the understanding is on the spiritual level. This isn't just any knowledge that a heretic can put forward. This is knowledge from God. This is knowledge of the gospel. This is knowledge of his word. Okay? So the spiritual wisdom then and understanding is contrasted with the heretic's counterfeit philosophy that we saw in Colossians 2.8 and the appearance of wisdom that Paul warns us all about in Colossians 2.23. These have an appearance of wisdom, but they're not really wise. Why do they have an appearance of wisdom? Well, think about their daily lives. Some of these people, well, many of the people would have been into, involved with agriculture, um, raising sheep so that they could shear them, and they were involved with the wool industry. Let's just say they happened to in, get involved with this Colossian heresy where they invoked angels. Let's just say coincidentally, or maybe I don't really believe in coincidence, let's say the Lord tests them. And all of a sudden, when they get involved with this heresy, their sheep start to thrive. Does that make then the Colossian heresy true? Well, no. Just because they happen to have sheep that are thriving doesn't make the fact they invoked angels true, but they may think that. 
You see what I'm saying? And so this is just empty deceit. It has an appearance of wisdom. It looks good on the outside, but in the end it leads to death. I had a friend who was a pastor. He's a talented guy. He's an electrician, a pastor, and um, a flight instructor. And I used to laugh. I'd go to school with him. And he had a license for everything the, the teacher would talk about. The guy would bring up something about flying, and my buddy would go, oh, I'm a flight instructor, and he'd talk about that. And the guy would say something about electric stuff, and my buddy goes, well, I'm an electrician. <laughs> and then he'd say something about religion, and my, and my buddy would say, well, I'm a pastor. You know, I mean, just, there was nothing anybody could say. He had a license for it. You know? Okay, so he was a, he's a renaissance man. He's just a great guy. But I remember him telling me, as I was a brand-new Christian, he said, Eric, rat poisons 98% corn, right? It's the other 2% that kills you, all right? That's what the Colossian heresy was. It looks good on the outside, but it'll kill you, all right? And that's the way a lot of heresy looks. It actually looks appealing on the outside, but it'll end up killing you, okay? All right, now let's move on from there. And Patrick, remember your question, too, or your comment here when we get into this passage. Okay, verse 10 Now, here it comes, this purpose again. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, uh, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. All right, now, let's make a few comments about this idea of bearing fruit. Let's make a contrast and contrast that. Look at this Colossians 1.21. There's a contrast between the bearing fruit in the Christian life and what's going to ha- what happened to us in our previous life. So in Colossians 1.21, Paul says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Again, this plays into the idea there's only two realms. There's two spheres. There's the sphere of living under the lordship of Christ, and there's the sphere of living under the stoichia, the demons, under Satan. Okay? There's two epics, two ages. There's the age that we're living in now, the the age of sin, dominated by the God small g of this world. And then there's the age, the messianic age, that will dawn, that you and I have the opportunity to become partakers of through faith in Christ. Okay? So there's only two spheres, there's only two ages. This is binary. Now, interestingly enough, the emerging church and the postmoderns, they don't like binary, do they? You can never have either this or that. Friends, it's all over the scriptures. You're either part of one kingdom or the other. That's it. There's no middle ground. It's the law of excluded middle. Either A or non-A. Okay? It's one or the other. All right? Now, also notice this contrast as well. And in them, namely the evil deeds Paul talks about in Colossians 3.7, you also once walked when you were living in them. And again, that's the idea of living in the sphere of wickedness. You were living in that sphere, but you're not living in that sphere anymore. And in fact, Paul says up here that you will walk. Well, how? How are we going to walk in uh, bearing fruit and increasing in knowledge? Well, as you're going to see, God is going to do that through us by sitting under the means of grace. God will do that graciously. So again, you left the old world. You're no longer living in the sphere of evil deeds. You've left that. Uh, and, oh, um, Patrick, did you have a comment there? Well, two things. Um, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about this uh, phrase, walking? And I, I think that has a little different meaning in, in the Greek than we use it in English, at least the way Paul intended it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll I just tell you what I know about it. First of all, the idea of walking, sometimes it's an imperative. We're commanded to walk in the Spirit. Okay, you're commanded to do that. 
What else are we commanded to do in Scripture that we can't do in of ourselves? Well, we're commanded to repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1.15. We're commanded to do a lot of things. So we are commanded to walk in the sphere of the Spirit, namely that we are submitting to the lordship of God and his word. Because the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, according to John 16. And so to walk in the sphere of these things, as we're commanded to, means that you and I submit to the things of God. Okay, But not only is it an imperative, but it's also something that we have to be given the ability to do. Okay, and, and so the idea of walking in this realm is only made possible, how? By God's grace. All right. Now, I don't know if that helps, but maybe you had some other thoughts. Well, that's really good, but not really my question. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. For I guess great. I'm just trying to get at walking more fundamentally. It means talking about the way that you live your life on an oh, ongoing okay. basis, right? Yeah, yeah. And we don't use it that way too much in English. Like I don't say to Bob, you know, how, how are you walking? No, I say, how's life, right? Sure. So um, the NIV translates it, and I don't know if this is really misleading us. It says... Uh, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord rather than walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Yeah. Is that, is that a little misleading? No, I don't think so. I, I think that the walk that's implied there is the day-to-day life. It's the idea of, you'd see from the Gospels where Jesus says, uh, pick up your cross. It's a daily thing. It's actually a moment-by-moment thing, this idea of walking. In fact, oftentimes you'll see it in the present tense. Present tense verbs, present active indicatives, it often means that you are continuously walking, okay? It never stops. And so it's continuously the way you live your life. And, yeah, so I think that's a, that's a good way of saying it. It's about submission in the life that we live. Yeah. Okay. Well, well I'm sorry. Can I ask yeah, one more question off of that? Um, so does this verse then tell us that it's possible to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Is it possible to please him in all respects? Yes, clearly, it is. Clearly it's possible in some way, in some limited... I mean, I'm, I'll never please God in all respects until I'm with him in, in paradise. Yeah. But yet, at the same time, I, I want to live out this verse, so what, what does that look like? Yeah, it, it absolutely is possible. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. But it is possible, but realize it's only possible because of God doing it through you. So this isn't an idea where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you accomplish this because you try harder, it's because your mind is transformed by God's grace or interacting with his word so that you think differently. And not only do you think differently, you start to believe differently because now you're impacted by the word of God. And because you think differently, you act differently. Again, but it's all by God's grace. You can never boast. And I'll show you a passage from Philippians 2 that talks about that very concept. So yes, we can do it, We can please the Lord. We can walk in a worthy manner with the Lord. But it's only God doing it through us, for us, and to us. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, somebody else had a comment. I guess when I started to read the passage and it said, so that you will walk, the first thing that popped in my head is walk with the Lord. And I just kind of read it as going that way, is that this is your, your daily walk with the Lord. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. Yep, it's the daily walk from the moment we're up and i'm going to talk a little bit about just what what is it how do we flesh it out a little bit and actually in the next slide i'm going to talk about something in my own life and maybe it resonates with you but we can all come up with examples of what it means to pick up our cross 
and it's actually a term related to, to steadfastness and, and loyalty. And I'll talk about that here in this next slide, actually. By the way, you see that bearing and increasing? I don't know if I mentioned but that those are two of the four participles. We have two more to go. Okay? In other words, these are the ways we're going to do this, the way we're going to walk worthily. Okay, now we're going to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. So that continues this idea of how we will walk. Now, here's something interesting, and I want you to see how this is structured. It's structured in a, a little chiastic structure. The first participle that we looked at in verse 10 was about bearing fruit. The opposite of bearing fruit is walking in evil deeds. Okay? So we're going to bear fruit. Now, the next thing we were to do is increase in knowledge, and then we were to be strengthened in power, and then we were to give thanks. Interestingly enough, Paul uses, again, we get back to our grammar. I love grammar because it helps us understand the Bible. So I hope you don't tire of this. I hope it helps you aid you in your studies because you know what? We have, all have access to this stuff through concordances. You can find out uh, what mood something is, what voice something is, and what tense something is by looking in a concordance and doing a word study. Okay. In fact, I was talking to Bob. Uh, what I'm going to do the next elders meeting, I might try to submit a plan that we build off of Ryan's hermeneutics course on Thursdays and get into some of these practical ways of how do we dig into a verse and actually uh, do our exegetical work where we're getting at the actual meaning of the text. And we can learn how to use some of these resources like concordances and word study books. But anyway, here's the big point that I want you to see. is The bearing fruit is an active voice. Increasing in knowledge is passive. Being strengthened in power is passive. And then giving thanks again is active. So the focal point of this chiastic structure is the middle portion because the passive indicates God is doing it. How are you going to do all these things? Well, God is going to do it through you. That's the idea. The active voice is, and, and, and by the way, we're all participants in all of this, but the chiastic structure shows us that God is the agent who is strengthening us and increasing our knowledge so that we can do something different in our lives. We no longer live according to the deeds of this age evil deeds, but rather we're living in a different sphere, walking worthily unto the Lord. Okay, now, let me talk about this term steadfastness. It comes from a Greek term, I love saying this, anything with a huh, I love saying, hupamane, oh, I can't say it, hupamane, hupamane, say that five times, you own that word, hupamane, hupamane. That word has to do with loyalty. And there's actually some evidence that it was used in times of battle, in classical Greek, and I think it's translated back into Koine Greek with kind of the same idea. It's the idea of covenant loyalty, of steadfastness in the time of battle. So this isn't just about steadfastness, the idea that for the majority of your life when things are going well, that you hold to the doctrines of the faith this has to do with what you guys are talking about, the nitty-gritty of life, okay? When the battle heats up, that you don't flee and say, you know, I've had enough. And I'm not just talking about, you know, I love to argue with heretics, so it's no big deal for me to say, yeah, I'm standing for the Lord when I'm battling heretics, because I like doing that, okay? The battle for me is when I'm in traffic and some guy cuts me off. I had a guy the other day, I'm doing 70. This guy merges on, he's doing 20. 
I'm like, okay, there's a, anyway, but you know, I get fired up, right? And I had to remember my steadfastness, my loyalty at that point was under fire because I could say, I will live under the severe of the Lord and say, blessed be the Lord, right? There, you know, or I could say, you know what? That's it. I'm, I'm going to ram mode. Okay. <laughs> but, but this is where we're going to pick up our cross and we're going to live it out. And it's only by God's grace that we're going to be able to accomplish it. So each of you have your point in battle where you're going to have to say, you know, I'll remain steadfast. The battle for me is when I'm in the grocery store line and I see the scantily clad women. Or the battle for me is when I drive by the liquor store. Whatever it is, I don't know. We all have our battle plan. But the point is, will you remain loyal to the Lord in battle? When I was a kid, I used to be babysit by my grandma and grandpa because my mom and dad both worked. And me and my brother would go over there, and I loved it. It was right by Crystal Airport, and I think that's why I loved flying so much at an early age. But I was sitting out on her deck, and I was reading an old World War II history book, and I'll never forget, there was a picture of, remember 1940? France was under imminent threat, yet the Germans had not invaded yet, and they called it the Sitzkrieg because the French built the Maginot Line, which ended up being worthless. And these soldiers just sat and waited for the Germans. And I'll never forget looking at this picture. It was a Frenchman, and he was riding his bike. And the caption said, French soldier rides his bike home for lunch. And I thought, in my whole life, I'll never forget that. I thought, riding your bike home, you're about ready to be taken over by Hitler, and you're riding your your bike home for lunch? You see, what kind of steadfast, what kind of soldier is that? And I thought just yesterday, that's kind of what I do when I sin. I say, Lord, I've had enough. I'm packing it in. Yeah, your lordship's fine most of the time, but right now I'm packing it in. I'm going to have lunch because I want to live the way I want to live. I'm packing up my machine gun. I'm taking my, my lunch bucket and I'm going. Friends, that's not steadfastfulness. Steadfastfulness is where we're loyal to the Lord And again, we can't do it ourselves. That's the beautiful thing. God has to do it in us, through us, and for us. All right? But that's the idea of steadfastfulness, being faithful in the time of battle. Okay? What would I do? I'm all excited here. Okay. We're going to the next verses here. Oh, by the way, this will help answer the question, too, of how do we walk? Philippians 2, 12 through 13 Joel, do you mind? Do you have a Bible with you? Do you don't, um, that's okay. Larry, Larry's always got a... Oh, do you have that? Oh, you got it? Great. I'm sorry, what's your name? Sandra, Sandra that's right. Sandra's got Philippians 2, 12 through 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So they were commanded to an imperative, work out your salvation, knowing that it's God working in you and through you and to you for his purposes, right? So who's actually doing it? Well, God is, but yet we're commanded. We're actually commanded to do something we can't do, but yet by God's grace, he enables us to do it. Do you see that in that passage? That's the idea of walking. We know if left to our own devices, we're going to be a flaming disaster. I love that passage in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, because it shows that you and I are commanded to do something, but we're completely reliant upon the Lord. And that has to do with the idea of what, yeah. Yeah, That's a good illustration of a theological truth that's necessary to understand the Bible. Yeah. And, And from A to Z, it's really necessary. There was a man in American history by the name of Charles Finney, who denied what you just said. Yeah. 
He said, God will never command any person to do anything other than what they have complete ability to do it. Oh, wow. Okay. That was a legal axiom. See, Finney was a lawyer, oh. and he's a brilliant lawyer. And so when he, when he converted to Christianity, he determined to create his own theology based on legal theory. Oh, that's okay? And so his legal theory said that God will only command what we have the ability to do. And then, consequently, his theology became the moral government mm. theory of the atonement. Now, what do we mean by the moral government theory of the atonement? Well, Jesus did not die, according to Finney, in order to satisfy God's wrath against man's sin. But Finney said Jesus died in order to show how angry God is with sin, to give a moral example. So, therefore, based on his concept of uh, stirring up what he calls stirring up dormant powers, that every human has within he or she the power to do everything they need to do, but you have to excite those dormant powers so the people's ability springs into action. Okay, so this man-centered doctrine of Charles Finney, who I believe was fully heretical. Yeah. He, he said the same things about the substitutionary atonement that the Roman Catholic Church did at Trent. He said it wow. was legal fiction. It was, it was a fiction that Jesus oh. actually died for our sins. Jesus died to show us how mad God is at sin so that we'll get stirred up to go take action. Now, the antidote. Now, isn't it ironic that that is about as heretical as you can get? And most Americans think Finney was a great revivalist. Oh. Wow, uh, he, he, he basically invented modern evangelicalism. In decision theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His decision theology. The, yeah. uh, he had new measures of evangelism based on his idea of human ability. Yeah. Now, what Eric just taught you, and I'm sorry to interrupt. No, uh, no, it's that, great. That point it's, is so I love, important. I love this history. Okay. It's good. That, <laughs> what Eric just taught is the antidote to Finneyism. Hmm. All right? God, does God ever command us what we don't have the ability to do in our own selves. Well, absolutely, every day. Be perfect as I am perfect. Uh, All right, well, go do it. What's wrong with you? What are you waiting for? Uh, (laughs) uh, And Paul says that everyone who's under the law is cursed because it says cursed in the Bible. He quotes this verse. Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all of the commandments. So Paul concludes, therefore, that everybody under the law is cursed. Because Paul doesn't believe there's a single person who has the ability to do that. That's right. Okay, so the question then becomes, why does God command us to do what we don't already have the ability to do? Mm. Because God wants us to depend on him. His command is valid moral direction. He tells us what is right. Grace causes us to desire to do what is right and get, causes us to have the ability to do what was right. Wow, okay? that's beautiful. And so I wanted to give a little jump in and give a little lesson. Yeah, that's good. I love it. You know, and it remind me, Bob, that that is really that argument with Finney is the same argument that Augustine and Pelagius had. Uh, Pelagius yes. really coined the same. This, so this argument, you guys, by the way, is not it's a old. new one. It's an old one. In yeah. fact, my last slide is about that very thing. Okay, so yeah. I, I wrote a paper for uh, Dr. I think it was Dr. Travis at... at uh, Bethel. Okay. Uh, it was a great professor there. And I claimed that I could prove that Finney 
was fully Pelagian. Oh, yeah. And so I wrote the paper, submitted it, and I got an A, so I convinced somebody. Good. All right. <laughs> was he on your side theologically? Was he? Travis? Yeah, yeah I think was he, he was. Okay. But he, he didn't. He was a church history professor, and he was kind of careful not to choose theological sides. Oh, so he didn't show his cards. Yeah, yeah he, I th- see. Not, not in class. He wanted people just to learn history. Yeah. Hmm. Means oh, of yeah. grace? Okay. Uh, as we've been teaching here at Twin City Fellowship for several years, God has means. And whenever we, and what you're teaching us here is pointing that out. God tells us what is right to give us moral direction. We realize our inadequacy, but God has means by which he changes us, which we're reading about in this prayer that Paul had. That's right. God uses means. Now, means that he uses are, you know, basically spelled out in Acts 2.42, sitting under the apostles' teaching, fellowship, prayer, breaking bread, which would be the Lord's Supper. As This was the revolutionary concept that totally changed my life and it changed my ministry. When I realized that... The first 10 or 15 years of my ministry, I spent all of my time trying to teach Christians to make the right decisions. Yeah. All right? And I'm frustrated when I didn't do it. Yeah. Well, I was naive. I didn't realize I wasn't making the right decisions either. Yeah. Now I trust that God's going to change them. So let's yeah, Bob, you know, with that Acts 2.42, just to let you know, too, that, um, you know, there's a lot of times in Acts, for instance, people will take from Acts and they'll ask us to do things that we shouldn't do. For instance, some heretics use Acts 2.40, that passage in there, about how they had all things in common and they shared things. And they say, well, that teaches communism. Remember Acts, that passage is descriptive, but it's not necessarily prescriptive. But when uh, Bob is bringing that, the, the means of grace, the four that are listed in Acts 2.42, those means of grace are commanded of us in other places in Scripture. So no one can just say that that's just a descriptive passage because it's prescribed elsewhere. Does that make sense? And so therefore you know it's not just descriptive, it's prescriptive as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do we deal with the Billy Graham organization? They even have a magazine called Decision. I know. I know. So I know. now you really want us in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got a little Bob, story about that. that. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you a story about Billy Graham's decision. Yeah. I wrote an article uh, entitled The Demise of Gospel Preaching in American Evangelicalism quite, a, quite a, a number of years ago. And in the article, I went into Joel where it talks about the Valley of Decision. And I pointed yeah. out that what Joel meant by the Valley of Decision was that God was the judge, the valley is the courtroom, and the people in the valley are on trial. Yeah. Okay, so they're sitting there in fear and trembling, and the judge has gone into his chambers, and he's going to come out with a decision. Mm. And the decision is a bad one for, in Joel because it's the day of the Lord. Yeah, okay? yeah that's right. It's the battle of Armageddon and, and it's going to wipe out all these people. Yeah. So my point is, in the article was this, that the person whose decision we have to be worried about is God's. That's right. Okay? Our, our part is whether we're going to flee to Jesus Christ for mercy so that when the judge comes out of the courtroom with his decision, yeah. he'll pronounce us not guilty on the grounds that Christ paid for our sins. Amen. You want that decision? Yeah. All right, so I wrote the article. I didn't see anything about Billy Graham, but I thought it was ironic that his entire ministry was built on the misuse of a passage in Joel. Because oh. the valley of decision wasn't us deciding whether God's worth... Look at the role reversal. I'm going to decide whether God's good enough for me to serve him. Wow. Who am I? Yeah. 
God's going to decide whether I'm going to go to hell. Now, that ought to invoke the fear of God in me. That's right. Okay, yeah. and, and flee to Jesus. Well, I wasn't picking up Billy Graham. I just wrote the article. Yeah, that's I right. I had an email from a personal friend of Billy Graham's. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and uh, a guy who works for NASA, and he uh, emailed me, and he said, I like your article, but it seems to me that you're disagreeing with Billy Graham. <laughs> <laughs> so I know what's going to happen. And I said, well, yeah, I, I'm not trying to tarnish Billy Graham as a person, but really Joel doesn't mean what he says it means. It's yeah. just I can't change what Joel means. Right. And he was very gracious about it. And, off on that one, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, just to give your interpretation more credence, too, I love it in Joel, talking, the Valley of Decision, also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And what's interesting is that, that valley is, literally means Yahweh will judge. Well, what's so interesting about that is I believe it's the Kidron Valley because in Zechariah 14, the last battle occurs where? It centers around Jerusalem. And so the idea there is Jesus comes back and he judges the nations at the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Yahweh will judge. What does Jesus' name mean? Yeshua, Yehoshua. Yahweh is salvation. So at the end time, there's a battle that culminates in the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Decision. And the ultimate uh, choice, again, God is going to be making it, is between whether people have Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh is judge. And, and, and that's the whole... Um, I mean, it's really a picture that is really perfectly laid out for us in the scripture. And so that just gives you more exegetical weight. In fact, you know, our trip to Israel, and I'm sure a lot of you guys had that here, um, was probably a lot of fun seeing Kidron Valley, knowing what it represents, that very valley that you're talking about. So anyway, sorry, we're getting off on a... Uh, what book are we studying again? <laughs> That's fun, though. I love stuff like that. So let's see now. We're done with this passage, right? This verse here? And we're going to move on until Jesus rescues us in 12b through 14. Now, listen to what it says. It says, who has qualified, and who, the who implied there is the Father. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay, again, that sphere. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, that sphere, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to make a few comments on this passage. Yeah, let me just click off here a few. First of all, the inheritance of the saints. Notice that God has qualified us for that. Now, how did he qualify us for it? Does somebody want to read Hebrews 9.15? Carla, will you mind doing that? And then if somebody else will read 1 Peter 1.4. I'm sorry, I gave Carla... Uh, Hebrews 9.15. And actually, Carla, start at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. There's the promise of the, internal, or the eternal inheritance. And Jesus is the one who has qualified us for this through his righteous life and his atoning death. 
Okay, so I always think of when we need Christ, we need two things. It's called the great transaction. What do we need from Christ? We first need a righteousness that we didn't have. He gave us that righteousness. A passage I like to think about the righteousness we need is Matthew 5.17 where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. He literally came to fill to the full the requirement of the law on our behalf. Okay, so now when you die, if you're clothed in his righteousness, you're not seen as a wretched sinner, deficient, but rather you're clothed in the perfect one's righteousness. But we also need atonement. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to talk about this idea of inheritance of the saints. I have a couple of Old Testament passages here where this idea of inheritance comes into the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then all of Israel is given the land. And what I want to say is that now in the New Covenant, By faith in Jesus Christ, the picture in the New Testament is that you have been grafted into the promises of the patriarchs. And in fact, we know more about our inheritance than they did back then. So what would the inheritance incorporate? Well, first and foremost, it incorporates you having a resurrected body. It incorporates you reigning with Christ purposefully, reigning with him in Israel during the millennial kingdom or wherever he places you. During the millennial reign of Christ, the great promise that the Messiah would sit on the Davidic throne. You have that to look forward to. What else do you have for the inheritance of the saints? Well, one day you will live in the New Jerusalem. Have you ever read about the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21? It is spectacular. Friends, you, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and are saved, you've got the world by the tail. You've got a lot to be excited about. The inheritance of the saints is spectacular. And I want you to just dwell on that. Um, again, we are told all the time by the postmoderns, by uh, those who are in the name and claim it crowd, whatever it is, they are living for today, and they will often tell you that you are so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Don't believe them. Living for the inheritance of the saints is what we should be about. And that's what, in fact, keeps us, in my opinion, on the straight and narrow path by God's grace. Okay, now, let me throw another section up here for you just to talk about this. Rescued from the domain of darkness. Um, 2 Corinthians 4. By the way, I have it goofed up here. Um, oh, I got it right there. But in your slides, I had made a mistake. I would put uh, 2 Corinthians 3, so you may want to just jot that down. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And this is where it talks about the God of this age blinding those who cannot perceive the gospel. Literally, they cannot see it. Okay, why? Because the God of this age has blinded them to that. Well, who is that? Well, it's Satan. Now, here's what I want to ask the question. When it talks about this idea of being rescued or this idea of redemption, for instance, redemption is the purchasing back which was lost, the question I want us to make sure we get the correct answer to is, who is the payment paid to? We see the idea of redemption, in the idea of ransom in the scriptures, there is a payment that must be paid where you and I were under the kingdom of Satan and we are now going to be transported from that kingdom into the kingdom of the beloved son. So we know the transaction, where we're going from. We're going from one kingdom to another. But the question is, and I'll throw it out there, who receives the payment? And Carla actually answered the question in Hebrews 9.14. Does anybody want to, I'll read that passage again. Does anybody want to take a stab at who, is, who actually receives the payment that makes this possible? Anybody got any thoughts? Anyone? I'll let me give a hint. Yeah. 
What's that? The ransom theory of the atonement is false. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. But what's that? Does anybody know what the ransom theory of the atonement said? The ransom theory said that Satan had to be paid off That's right. in order That's to get true. us back. That's right. Okay. And, that's and that true. actually held sway in church history for several hundred years. It's a big problem. Yeah. And some people would say, well, your idea of the substitutionary atonement is more recent. And Selman invented that. But, no. <laughs> it goes back to the apostolic. You have to go back right. to the scriptures and see whether they teach that Christ died on our behalf. Mm, amen. Who bear? Okay, if Christ died on our behalf, then who, whose wrath did Christ satisfy? Mm, God. So that's the answer. Uh, I love it. Yes. So you guys get an A. <laughs> that's good. Thanks, Bob. That's good. And, and just the passage that Carla read, let me just read it very slowly again. Uh, 9.14 Hebrews, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself... Now, he offered himself without blemish to who? Well, to God. Yes. It's to God. And so that answers the question, doesn't it? The payment was paid to God. And so let's never forget, yes, we're taken from one domain, the domain of darkness, to now the domain of the beloved Son, his kingdom, but the payment was never paid to Satan. And when we talk about the doctrine of hell, who runs hell? It's not Satan with a pitchfork. It's God. So it's God's wrath that we have to be worried about. It's God who deserved the payment. Friends, that's why in Romans 3, 23 through 26, one of my favorite passages says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And then in verse 26, it talks about why he did that. Because God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time, that he may be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So think about this. Jesus, who was you know, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God demanded justice. But that same God came down and paid the debt. And he became the justifier. Real quickly, a story of a man who was a king in Africa. He made a decree. This illustrates this idea. He made a decree that if anyone would ever steal his staff that he would rule with, they were to receive 40 lashes, which would nearly kill a person. Well, this man, the, the king, made the decree, and he could not go against the decree because then he would be an unjust king. Are you with me? Well, his mother ended up coming down with dementia. She ended up kind of losing her marbles, right? Well, it ends up happening that she ends up stealing this king's staff. And there was this search for who had the, the king's staff, and the king was extremely troubled to find out that it was own, his own mother. Now it comes to the court hearing. The mother is sat down uh, where she is going to receive the lashes. Now remember, if the king goes against his decree, he's an unjust king, is he not? Because how can he show favor to one person and not someone else? Justice must be served. Otherwise, there's no rule. There's no justice in the land. But the king loved his mother. And so what he did is he took his mother's place. He removed her from sitting there, and he took the 40 lashes. And so therefore, he became now the, he was always the just, but then he became the justifier as well. And so there's justice in the land, but there's also mercy. 
And see, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He demanded just forever, you guys, he was going to get glory for being just. He is the just God. But the very fact that you and I sinned, now I'm not saying it's a good thing. Remember, it's a moral bad. But God took that evil that we did. And he demonstrated even more of his glory because now he became the justifier. So he gets glory for being both the just and the justifier. And so to him belong the praises throughout all generations as being the God who's both the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And for that, I think we can all be grateful. You know, we're out of time. Well, again, we'll just finish slides as we come to them. I'm in no hurry. Is You know, we got more slides to get through. We'll handle them next time. So... God bless you. I hope you guys have a great, uh, we're going to have a great time eating together later. So that'll be exciting. We'll see you down here for food.